Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello to our fellow royal lovers and welcome to Royally Us. I'm Christina. Molly Molshine is on vacation this week. So we are joined by our guest co-host, royal commentator, Jonathan Sacerdoti. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Hi, Christina. I'm good. Thanks. How are you? It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you and it's great to be back. I've been uh, on maternity leave for 12 weeks and I want to give a huge shout out to um, Joe Drake, who has been filling in for me for the past 12 weeks. He did a fabulous job. So thank you, Joe. But I'm so excited to be back and get um, right back into all the royal news. We have so much to cover today. Jonathan, let's get into our royal roundup and kick it off. Um, Like we said, it's been 24 years since Princess Diana's tragic death at the age of just 36. And so how are people in the UK remembering Princess Diana on the death of her, uh, on the anniversary of her death. I don't think anyone ever really forgot Princess Diana, and so it seems amazing that that much time has passed. I, I can remember the day it happened, mm-hmm. uh, waking up and seeing it on the TV and the, the news then unfolding. And you know, there was a massive reaction in the UK. Some people were quite perplexed by quite how big the reaction was. There was that sea of flowers, and uh, there was just this feeling of overriding sadness. Some called it hysteria because ultimately she was a, a much loved member of the family uh, by the public Mm -hmm. and she was somebody people looked up to but she was also somebody people didn't really know personally and I think what's amazing is the amount uh, to which people did feel they knew her of course people who'd never met her Harry even mentioned it recently when he's been talking about the the effect it had on him and and, and his grieving that so many people who'd never even met her seemed sadder than he was as he had Mm -hmm. to walk behind her in that funeral cortege. So I think uh, the public is mixed as it was then and, and nothing's really changed. Some people absolutely loved Diana and remember her with the same sadness today as they did back then. Oh, definitely. I remember seeing videos and images of people, you know, literally crying in the streets, w- weeping, wailing in the streets, you know, learning of of, uh, of her death. And it still seems like even 24 years later, we're talking about her, not more than ever, but just as much, I would imagine. You know, we had the statue unveiling over the summer to mark her, uh, what would have been her 60th birthday. You know, we have this film with Kristen Stewart coming out in a couple of weeks, which we'll talk about a little bit later. You know, the crown has been centered all around her. We've have all these documentaries. It seems like, you know, we're still like a new generation of people are getting to know her each and every, you know, few years. 
And I think that's right. I think back in the day, you could make sure a magazine sold by putting a picture of her on the front cover. Mm -hmm. And it seems like nothing's changed. I mean, a whole blockbuster movie based on a few days of her life. Mm -hmm. uh, these sorts of things are enormous. And then, of course, all the rumors that Meghan is trying to become today's Diana and carefully looking at the things she did and trying to mirror them. So it just shows you what an enormous influence she was in people's lives, including in the royal family itself. Yeah. Do you really feel like Meghan is kind of taking a page out of Diana's book and kind of mirroring things that she did? And do you feel, I don't think how do you feel like she's doing that? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if that's what she's doing, because there were things about Diana which many people saw as very positive within the royal family. And then as she left the royal family, you know, after this messy divorce, she she really tried to use her position and her fame for, to promote not only herself, but also causes and charities around the world. There's those famous image of her with the HIV patients or walking through a landmine area for the landmine charity. These are really positive things she was trying to do positive images so I think if Megan does want to emulate that it's quite understandable and I think that she is showing herself as somebody who at least in her head is pursuing worthy goals around the world and, and trying to elevate certain causes to a, a level where we're all aware of them just as Diana did and she's getting the same criticism Diana did from some quarters for doing that because there are people who say that both of them might have been also thinking about their own image a bit more than the causes they were claiming to represent. Right, definitely. All right, well, we're going to talk more about uh, Princess Diana and Kristen Stewart's um, take on her a little bit later. But first, we want to um, get into this new epilogue of Finding Freedom. Of course, the book was released mm -hmm. a few months ago, and um, we devoured it. And a lot of people had a lot to say about it. But now there's some new chapters, and uh, we're learning some, some new things that have happened since they gave that tell-all interview a few months back. So what surprised you the most in this new epilogue? I'm going to be a bit of a stick in the mud and say what surprised me the most is how little there was in there that was actually new. I mean, mm -hmm. there was loads of stuff kind of bringing everything back to the surface. And if, if all of these sores had started to heal, uh, well, this book's certainly trying to rip them open again and pour some salt in while, while they're at it. But in the end, there were these kind of uh, little repeats of some of the stuff. There were bits of extra gossip and conjecture about the things that we've been talking about since that interview and since the book was released released. But I don't think there was a massive amount of new information. And so that was perhaps the surprise that it was re-released like this on this important anniversary moment as well. And yet what was in there, you know, a bit of new gossip, but not a huge amount more. Right. What was some of the new gossip that kind of stood out to you a little bit? Well, I think that uh, some of the stuff that came out there was, was, here's the thing. I think that Meghan and Harry say that it's not authorized or official. And so it's, it's not fair to take it as uh, their word. Um, but at the same time, the authors clearly have a very close relationship to certain people who know what those two are thinking and quotes friends of theirs and sources close to them. And, and those people are unlikely to speak with the authors of a book like that if it's right. not uh, with the approval of the people the book's about. Mm -hmm. And so I think people do assume that it's unofficial, but a bit official. And so yeah. the stuff that perhaps surprised me uh, and, and the stuff that's coming out of there that's new 
is this idea that they're dragging up that racism allegation again that they made, saying that the palace didn't take ownership of the issue and that that was something that was remarkable to them. I think that was uh, a new a new nugget that's come out, and, and right. then dragging that back up again. And, and then there were uh, bits and pieces uh, about you know what they've done over the years since it's been released. I mean, there were also things about the big interview that they did and how their timing was around it, how they decided when to do it, how they felt about it, and the fact that they thought about naming the person that they alleged was racist in the family. I mean, as bits of news go, announcing that you thought about doing something that you didn't do is a little bit strange, but hey, it's selling magazines and papers and books, apparently. Right. Yeah. And we're talking about it, you know, right. You know, it's, you know, they did say that they decided to do the tell all interview, you know, pretty much the same day that she found out that her mail on Sunday lawsuit was decided. So, you know, as soon as that was done, she got on the phone and was like, I'm ready to speak. And Megan said that she felt very, um, I guess I felt it was cathartic. She cathartic, said, yes, that's yes, what they she said. Was- and I have to say the thing about that, that, that bit stuck out to me. So they said they, they waited for the timing because of the court case with the mail. Uh, and of course that court case with the mail was all about one of the things that we hear from them a lot, that they feel their privacy is in, invaded and intruded upon. That was about a letter that Meghan Markle's estranged father uh, had, and he released to the paper some of the words that she had said in the letter. And she then made a copyright claim, I think it was, against the newspaper for publishing it. Um, Now, that's fine. That kind of squares with their image of wanting privacy and wanting the press to go away. But then they waited until that court case was finished. And the very moment it was, they decided to go and do this massive interview that was then televised around the world. Those two things don't really sit well together for me and for loads of people. That's not someone looking for privacy. That's someone waiting for their privacy-related court case to end Mm -hmm. and then jumping straight back into the spotlight. Yeah, the timing was a little bit um, interesting, to say the least. And they also talk about, you know, Prince Harry flying back for Prince Philip's funeral. And obviously there was a lot of tension with the family. This was the first time he's really seen them. You know, there was some reports that uh, he had sent a letter to Prince Charles before that, but they say in the book that that did not happen, but they did have a conversation, a brief conversation while he was there. Yeah, and also they, they say that several members of the royal family were understood to have been quite pleased that Meghan stayed in California mm-hmm. because they didn't want a circus or or they didn't want the Duchess creating what they called a spectacle. Mm-hmm. So that's quite, I mean, suppose that is quite explosive as a claim. But again, not that surprising. I think mm-hmm. who of us didn't know that perhaps the royal family didn't want Meghan there right. after everything that had been going on. And in a funeral for somebody so much loved, not just in the family, by the Queen herself and by the nation as well, You can remember that that funeral, it was actually very poignant because of how small it was. And yet it had all that pomp and circumstance that surrounds royal family events. It was it was spectacular to watch and very moving, even for people who aren't particularly royalists. Right. And I think the distraction of having Meghan there, who, you know, wasn't that close to the Duke of Edinburgh as far as we can tell because I mean she hadn't even been in the family that long not saying that to to, you know disrespect her it's just how it was so given I think it was 30 or something people were allowed to be there I'm not surprised that Meghan wasn't necessarily high up on the list of guests and I think they did the right thing for her to stay home and of course also there was the baby um, and so I think that issue meant it would have been pretty much impossible anyway for her to go.
Definitely. I mean, and then where do they say that everybody kind of stands right now? I know Harry had um, a moment with the queen while he was there and, you know, maybe he's trying to repair those relationships. Obviously he had the huge rift with his brother, but it seems like things are kind of from where we were a year ago, starting to get a little bit more back on track. Yeah, well, Prince William, according to the book, wherever family matters were being discussed in the public domain. And uh, it's unlikely, I guess, that he's going to comment more on it other than what he said at the time, that they're very much not a racist family. That was an answer he gave to uh, someone from the press when at a public event just afterwards. Um, but, you know, emotions, they say in the book, are still raw. And I guess that's not surprising that they're still raw because quite some allegations going back and forth. But yes, of course, over the year, there must have been some discussions, some sort of attempts at reconciliation. But I keep saying that, you know, it's speculation. Um, I'm not party to their private conversations, but I think it must be incredibly difficult to try and have those conversations because they must always be a bit worried about what Meghan and Harry are going to reveal to the press or in a press stunt or in a new revised version of the book or even in Prince Harry's own book. So I think that there's a, perhaps a nervousness on the part of the royal family to say too much and to make right. too great an effort to reconcile, even though I'm sure that they'd want to, if only for PR purposes, never mind for family peace. Sure. You, I mean, you make a, a really good point. Like, and you say, you know, emotions are raw and now they're going to be, you know, kind of brought to light again with this new epilogue and things like that. But you do make a point, like, can I trust you when I have these conversations that you're not going to run back and, and, you know, divulge our family secrets even more. So we'll kind of wait and see what happens. Like you, you mentioned uh, Prince Harry's book as well, which, you know, we can't wait to read, but. Um. And you know, the last bit that I think was just like a real corker, like real surprise to me was when they asked them if, well, rather when the book said, did they have any regrets yeah. uh, over the last year, uh, Meghan and Harry? And amazingly, the answer is, uh, is no, they don't. I'm not sure if that comes directly from the horse's mouth. As we said, they don't uh, attribute things to direct conversations with the couple. But they said that as difficult as the recent years have been, sources close to the Sussexes say that neither Harry nor Meghan have any regrets about the decisions they've made. I mean, really? No regrets about cutting off Thomas Markle because of those photos with the paparazzi, like literally cutting him off from ever meeting his grandchildren. Uh, no regrets uh, about what they said about Prince Charles cutting them off from money, even though it's been shown not to be quite how they said it was. No regrets about saying that the Archbishop of Canterbury married them secretly beforehand, even though he came out and said he didn't. No regrets about any of these issues that have been so incendiary in Britain and the royal family and now are starting to have many people, even in the States, turn against them a bit. I can't believe they've got no regrets. I mean, don't you have some regrets over your last year? I certainly oh have God, a few. Totally. <laughs> I have a ton of regrets. <laughs> you got you got some time? We'll list them all. <laughs> exactly. I mean, who doesn't have some regrets about how they conducted themselves with their family over the last year and what have you? It, it's, to me, it shows quite a supreme degree of, I don't know, self-certainty, or you might even say arrogance to say that there's no regrets. That's right. that really, I suppose if you go back to what you asked me before, that's the biggest surprise to me. And yet it's not a surprise because it kind of fits with the way they've done things. They right. do tend to behave like they know what they're doing and everything is carefully planned. And so maybe there are no regrets. Maybe this is how they wanted it to go. 
Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Who knows if what keeps them up at night? Maybe we'll never know. Or maybe he'll, like we said, he'll tell us all in his next book. But let's move on to Spill the Royal Tea because the Mail on Sunday is actually reporting that William and Kate may be moving closer to Windsor Castle. And this is interesting because I think, or they're saying that if they make the move closer to Windsor Castle, they're going to take on even more responsibility because they're going to be so close to the Queen. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it makes sense what they're doing, because over the years, there's been a sort of shift in the workload from the Queen to other members of the working royal family. Um, And I think that that shift has been partly because of her age. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, it's going to be harder for her to do quite as much as she always used to. And as well, it's a way of preparing the next generations, because remember, there's two adult heirs now. There's Prince Charles and there's Prince William. Both of them are really learning how to do the job they'll one day have to do by helping the Queen uh, and lightening her load a little bit. So I think that this move might be partly connected to that, as you say, moving closer to the Queen and and closer uh, to bring the whole sort of nuclear family a little bit closer together. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is actually going to happen or do you think that this is kind of like years in the making maybe? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, it could be. And, and it's interesting that the paper, you know, said that this was something they're thinking of. Obviously, remember as well that things have changed because of circumstances. The Queen has been more or less confined to Windsor sure. Castle for yeah. a massive amount of time because of COVID. Um, and, and she moved there sort of semi-permanently. Uh, so it's definitely something that would make sense if they do go ahead and do it. Uh, at the moment, they're living between two addresses. One is Kensington Palace, their official address. And the other one is Amna Hall, uh, which is in Norfolk. It's on the Queen Sandringham estate. She gifted them that place actually uh, for their wedding. And it was their official residence from 2015 to 2017. Um, And of course, if they live in Windsor, it's going to be easier for them to get to and from London than from uh, Amna Hall. So that could be another reason that they're thinking about moving there. What do you think, Diana, if Diana was alive today, what do you think that she would be feeling about, you know, the movie Spencer, about how she's depicted in The Crown? Because you made a good point before that people are focusing so much on the dark times of her life. I mean, how do you think that she would feel about all of this? Yeah. I, by the way, I would say I didn't really wear a dress to my nephew's bar mitzvah. Um, <laughs> so, so. <laughs> so, so that's not quite my style. Uh, but I think that Diana would probably be grateful that she's still in everyone's minds. I mean, she said famously that she wanted to be queen in people's hearts. Um, when she made that decision to leave Prince Charles, who is going to be king, uh, she effectively resigned from a future role of being queen or, or consort. So... I think that she would probably be pleased that her memory is still alive for so many people and that it's done in a a sensitive and sympathetic way. But as I said, I think perhaps it's a shame. I can't say how she would feel about it, but I think it's a shame that we're remembering her so much for tragedy and sadness, not only because it's a bit self-indulgent, really, that that we're just wallowing in this sadness, which I think is a bit of a modern uh, problem, Mm -hmm. um, wallowing in a bit of victimhood. But I think that because really Diana's own attempts were to be quite a force for good and positivity, and I think it would be a shame just to remember tragedy, uh, though perhaps that is what she's most famous for. Perhaps this is the first draft of history that says, yeah, forget the stuff that she thought she was doing well, good deeds and things. She's going to be remembered as this symbol of sadness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I hope not. But we're going to see how, um, you know, how the movie kind of plays out and how people react to it. It's going to be premiering at the Venice Film Festival in um, a week or so. And then it, I think it's in theaters in November. So we'll definitely uh, recap that all once we, you know, once we see it. But let's move on to our Royal History Moment of the Week, lighten things up a little bit because uh, Queen Elizabeth is being credited by creating uh, her own dog breed, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> yep, exactly. They're called doggies, which mm -hmm. isn't just uh, a, a queen-like way of saying the word doggies. Doggies. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's actually a cross between a dachshund and a corgi. We all know she likes corgis, but apparently, uh, so the story goes, Princess Margaret's dachshund Pipkin was a bit of a rogue and uh, had his way with one of the Queen's corgis and bingo, <laughs> there we had a, we have a dorgy. You got a dorgy. <laughs> a dorgy, of course. Um, but you know, that's, uh, the Queen was ahead of her time perhaps because mm. now we have all these, you know, fashionable crossbreeds, cockapoos and uh, things like that, labradoodles and mm. there we are. The Queen apparently has been creating dorgies for some time. Who knew? Who knew? I absolutely love it. All right. Well, before we wrap up, we have to check in on our royal kids. And this week, Prince Charles detailed a fun tradition that he has started with his grandson, Prince George. I love this. It's all about, you know, Prince Charles is all about nature and climate change and things like that. So he's getting his uh, grandson hands dirty by planting some trees, right? That's right. And he's, he's planting these trees, I think, with uh, the idea that in the future, it'll be like a forest for him as he grows up. Uh, I think there's an old Chinese proverb that the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago, but the second best time is right now. So I think Prince Charles is proving that. And again, it gives a little sense, not just of his passion for nature and, and the environment, but also his forward-looking nature. You know, he, he won't always be around, but these trees that he's planting will be for his grandson and for the whole of the you know of the country for the future of the nation definitely i like that tradition i think it's a good tradition for a lot of you know grandparents to start with their grandkids yeah. i really like it a lot well jonathan thank you so so much for stepping in to guest host with me this week it was absolutely a pleasure and you made my first episode back absolutely wonderful thank you well, the pleasure has been all mine thank you